Well, communication uh, is an interesting thing, um, especially for someone who speaks publicly. You know, there's three parts to communication. There's the speaker, there's the message, or the content of the message, and then there's the hearer. Three parts, right? Speaker, message, hearers. And sometimes, um, if the communicator is not very good, pastor or public speaker, um, they may say something that they don't intend, and, and the, the audience gets the wrong idea. In that case, it's bad communicator. Um, at other times, people come, come in to listen uh, with a lot of baggage or filters of their own, in which case they hear something that actually wasn't said. And the reason I bring that up is because uh, that happened to me last week. And part of this is clarification. And part of this uh, brings us to kind of the context of, of our time. That is, you know, last week I finished part two of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, the theologian, pastor, spy, um, who joined a conspiracy to overthrow Hitler and ended up dying um, at the gallows. Well, we looked at the second part of his life last week, and uh, at the end of second service, this, this elderly couple came up to me who were just passing through. They just decided to stop at Parkway, so I don't think I'm going to offend them because they are passing through. Um, and they handed me these two prayer cards, you know, like in the seat back in front of you. And I, I thought, well, prayer requests, like these people are dropping off prayer requests. And they weren't prayer requests. Actually, they were, um, I don't think outraged is uh, an overstatement. Outraged over my message um, about Bonhoeffer's participation in a conspiracy to overthrow Hitler because they made the association that somehow I was encouraging, inciting, and they used the word riot, opposition towards Donald Trump, as if there's an association between Hitler and Trump. And uh, that, that's what they got out of the message. I get those sometimes, by the way, get those cards. And some of you are probably writing one right now. But <laughs> I just have to say that was not the point of the message. We do not live in Nazi Germany. And so just in case maybe you heard that, that's not what was meant, okay? But, interesting thing, and they, apparently these were some rather gung-ho Trump supporters. Um, it just reaffirmed to me what we all know. And that is there's the, the people are unsettled, right? Like, wanting California to secede from the Union or leave the country. I mean, that's just... that's. The feeling, right? You see it in the news. I don't have to tell you this. It's just people are unsettled, regardless of who they voted for on both sides. As the older couple, um, obviously, we're an example of people unsettled. And as I reflected on that, and I think, you know, I know that there are people who voted for both candidates in this room. And this isn't a political statement. It's just I want to get to a theological statement. As I reflected on what they said to me and and the times in which we live, it, it just struck me that that the unbelieving world out there doesn't have the resources that we have to live by. I, if, if, if there's no God, if there's no overarching plan, if there's no uh, redemption, well, then all we're left with is human systems, right? Systems, political systems upon which to depend. And if they go against what we believe, then we're, we're left with really nothing but anger and frustration and trying to change things, because it all is, at the end of the day, relies upon or is on us. 
It's just that the world, unbelieving world just doesn't have the resources that we have. And that the Christian really, if we were to take the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible seriously to heart, we have no reason to be unsettled. I just even think about the words of Christ when he, in Matthew 24 when he said all these things are going to happen. He says, don't be troubled. These things must happen. Like, Christians shouldn't be surprised, right? We shouldn't feel unsettled or panicked or overly anxious. Do things that are happening matter? Yes, they do. But we have a deeper truth that we believe in. And over the last several, several weeks, I've been meditating on, on Revelation chapter 5. And it's just provided for me a um, perspective, um, a settling perspective, uh, a rooting perspective um, on, on what we believe. And, and I want to bring you, um, hopefully encourage you, with, with the truth of this chapter, Revelation 5. Now, a lot of people are scared of the book of Revelation because it has all of these symbols and images of, you know, dragons and, and beasts and lambs and bulls and trumpets and cities of unusual size and cryptic numbers and square roots and different things. So it can terrify people to come to this book, the last book of the Bible. Um, and those symbols make it a bit difficult sometimes to interpret, and yet those symbols hold the power to both reveal and to inspire a sense of awe and wonder about who God is, who his son is, and the world around us. And so I simply want to look at really two main images in chapter 5, really the focal point, in hopes that like this morning, we have something deeper upon which to give thanks. Something deeper upon which we find a sense of security and settledness about life. Uh, those two images, this image of the lamb and the image of, of the scroll. The lamb and the scroll. These, uh, the chapter's told in a rather dramatic fashion. It's meant to. It's meant to give us a sense of awe at the whole picture. Chapter 4, is a, is a, this is a John's vision of heaven, what's going on in heaven. Um, and then later he talks about what he sees happening on earth. But this, chapters 4 and 5, are St. John's uh, vision of what's going on in the divine realm over us. Chapter 4 focuses on the Almighty who sits on the throne and the worship of heaven. Or should I say the worship of heaven to God, um, the creator of all things. And then chapter 5 picks up with... Uh, focus on a scroll, a scroll that's in the right hand of the Almighty. And uh, in a, in a, as I said, in a rather dramatic fashion, um, the, uh, this angel, this great angel, and if you don't have your Bibles open, I just really encourage you, Revelation chapter 5, um, this, this great angel, you know, takes a place of proclamation and with a, a, a loud voice um, asks the question, uh, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. You know, I think if, uh, if uh, Spielberg were to make this into a movie, he'd create this being, you know, computer-generated being that's awesome and has a, a voice like James Earl Jones that booms. Because the sense is, is this angelic messenger's declaration or question is heard throughout the universe. Asking who is worthy to take this scroll. 
And I like to think that if he were to make it into a movie, there would be this grand, grand, grand pause in which all of heaven, not just heaven, but earth and what's under the earth, the realm of the dead, everything is silent. That is, no one speaks up. Not in heaven, not on earth, not under the earth. No one steps up and no one raises their hand saying, I'll give it a try to take that scroll out of your hand. Michael, the archangel, doesn't qualify. Gabriel, the archangel, doesn't qualify. God's angelic generals do not qualify. They stand, in my imagination, silent and still. None of God's angelic generals is qualified. Or on earth, the best that humanity has had to offer, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Job, Daniel, Mary, the mother of Jesus, remain silent and still because they are all disqualified by their sinfulness. And no one under the earth. The scene is that in, in every square inch of heaven and earth, there's not a single being who has the qualifications to walk forward and take the scroll. That's pretty dramatic, right? That's a picture. No one. And in a dramatic sense, we see John respond by, by weeping, right? He knows well enough, he's a Jewish guy, he knows his Old Testament, that a scroll like that, that's sealed, is probably a prophetic word dealing with the end of times. So he begins to weep. There's, there's no one, absolutely no one in heaven. All of heaven is silent. No one's raising their hands. No one's stepping forward at all. Until someone leans over and, and says to, to John, weep no more, behold. It's like, there is one. I love the drama of the passage. There is, there is one. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He like grabs a, a prophetic word from Genesis 49 and another one from Isaiah and puts it together. There is one. And a little later on in the passage, he sees him. It says, and between the throne, and literally in the Greek, it means in the midst of the throne. Like, somehow. It just seems awkward, which is why they say between. Just in the midst of the throne. The place where the the Most High, the I Am, um, rules over heaven and earth. He says, um, and the four living creatures that is in the midst of them, and among the elders, the 24 elders, that's chapter 4's reference, 24, I saw a lamb standing. As though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He's one qualified. He's qualified for a number of reasons. And, And all of the little descriptions of him, including these symbolic ones, are meant to... um impress upon us truth about who he is. He's not only from the line of David, which means that the lamb or Christ is is the rightful heir to the throne of David, but he's also human. He's a man who is able to take this scroll, and that's significant. It it, it picks up on this, this grand theme or 
piece of the story from the beginning to the end of the Bible. As, 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 as God designed from the very beginning, he placed dominion into the hands of Adam, our, our at one point perfect forefather. So you exercise dominion over the works of my, of, of my hands. He made him a king. He made him to rule over the earth. That's, that's how God made him. Of course, he, he fell because of his rebellion. But it stands to reason, though, that God's design would not change. So here we see someone from the line of David, a man, a new or a second Adam, who comes forward to fulfill God's original plan. Had to be human. He's human. Um, from, the, from, the, from the line of David, he's described as having a lamb with, 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 with seven horns. Now, that's a rather grotesque picture. I would have to say, but the symbolism of it is rich. I grew up in the country. My dad had billy goats, and my neighbors, they had rams and sheep. And uh, every one of us kids knew, stay away from the horns, right? You don't want to get hit by a billy goat with the horns, right? The horns throughout the Bible are a symbol of strength, right? Power. If you have one horn, like a unicorn... There's power there. Two horns, like a ram or a billy goat, well, there's power. The idea is that Christ, um, seven horns, the number of perfection, the number of completion. In other words, the lamb himself, Christ himself, wields all power, or what we would call omnipotence. The man who holds fullness of power is the one who takes the scroll. Is also described as having seven eyes. You know, it, your eyes are the primary organ of knowledge. They're not the only organ of knowledge, but most of what we learn about the world, about each other, is taken in through the eyes. They are an avenue of knowledge. We read with our eyes. We see the outline of our, the face of our, our loved ones with our eyes. We take in creation with our eyes. It is the primary avenue of, of knowledge. And, and eyes became a symbol of knowledge and wisdom. Here, Christ is described as having seven eyes. In other words, his perspective, his knowledge, and his wisdom are exhaustive, or what we call omniscience. So he is the rightful heir of David, the second Adam. He is, holds all power. He knows all, all wise. But there's one final and really important qualification And it's summed up in the song that they sing as a result of him taking the scroll. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, worthy is Christ, worthy is Jesus, worthy is the the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, here's the reason, you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's original mandate to Adam was to fill the earth for the nations to fill the earth. And here Christ comes as the second Adam, as the lamb, and he gives his life to purchase for God a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, realizing God's original plan. He died for them. He died for them. And we're part of that huge plan, part of that great people that God has purchased um, by the blood of his own son from our sin and from death. So he is worthy... Because he gives his life for his people, 
to complete God's mission. Church, that is a, that is, those are qualifications of a leader. All power, all wisdom comes from the line of David. He realizes the original mandate to Adam and dies for his people. And, and the response of heaven, the divine realm, is euphoric. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. The symbolism itself creates a sense of wonder. I mean, the four living creatures around the throne and around the Lamb that are described in chapter 4 as having animal-like features of birds and ox and lions and humans, north, south, east, and west, signifies all animate life in creation. Everything that has breath is around the throne. And around them, 24 elders, probably representing all of the people of God from the Old Testament and New Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles of the church. In other words, the entirety of the redeemed. And around them are all these angels beyond number, all of the generals and the colonels and the privates and the angelic army, thousands upon thousands all around. And their response is to sing with one voice that's singular, worthy is the Lamb. That's, that's how heaven feels about the Lamb. That's how heaven responds to Christ. Down below on earth, and Revelation has a lot to say about what's happening on earth, that's not happening, at least on the part of the majority. But in heaven, Christ is central and supreme. All of heaven worships. With a one voice. See, it's, to me, this is, uh, stirs my affections. Uh, sense of awe of who Christ is. But the question remains, so what in the world is a scroll? Right? It's, it, it seems to me really clear that the passage is centered on Christ the Lamb. But associated with that is he's the only one worthy of taking the scroll. So what is this scroll about? Why is this so important? Why is this book so important? And here I want to, again, if you, this is going to have a payout at the end, by the way. I'm going to bring this home to why this is important. And maybe you're already feeling or sensing it. But here's how, backing up to verse 1, how the scroll is described. This all-important book that the Almighty God the Father has in his hands, who no one can take it, but Christ himself. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. In other words, both sides. Whether it was a scroll or a book, it's like there's writing everywhere. Sealed with seven seals. Written front and back. A lot of words. I believe the symbolism of it is that this is not the abridged edition. Is not a, an outline. It's not the Cliff Notes version, but rather, this is an exhaustive account. It is a detailed account of what we'll get to in a second. But it, it communicates that this is exhaustive and it's detailed. The fact that it's sealed means two things it means that it is both protected and it also conceals. Like, whatever's behind the seal is protected from being changed or amended. In other words, what's inside cannot be changed. 
It's unalterable, unchangeable, unamendable. That's the protection part. But as each of the seals is undone, it reveals something. And in fact, the way that the book of Revelation unfolds from here on out, as a seal is broken and something's revealed, something happens on earth, right? Like something is executed, something is fulfilled, something happens. Heaven impacts earth as these things are revealed. And the fact that there are seven seals, again, the number of perfection or fullness, indicates, I think, that with this scroll, everything is concluded. History is brought to its end. The story is, 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 is at an end. So here you have this scroll. It's exhaustive. It is protected in order to contents are protected. At the same time, it reveals things that the Lamb is going to do on the earth, and it will bring history to its final conclusion. So there you have an idea of what it signifies, at least parts of it. But the question is, again, what is this scroll that's all important, that Lamb alone is able to take because he's worthy? Through the interpretation, I should say, through the history of the church, there have been four primary interpretations of this. One is that it's the Old Testament. That's what the book is, which really doesn't make sense. Why would it be sealed? Um, And what follows after chapter 5 really doesn't fit. Um, Another is that the Lamb's Book of Life, you know, where all of those who actually believe in Christ are, are, are written. But that too doesn't follow or make sense with a subsequent context. Um, others have said that this is a book pertaining to some crisis at the end of history or what is popularly known as the tribulation period, which at some point is future. Or the fourth position, and the one I am convinced of, is, is basically this is the book, this is the scroll of redemptive history that is set in motion by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or, as one commentator writes, uh, Jesus takes the scroll containing, here I quote him, God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but has yet to be completed. In other words, the scroll doesn't pertain to some future moment in time, but it deals with the historical period in which we ourselves are in. And I believe the symbolism of the rest of the chapters give room for that interpretation. That we're talking about, he's holding the scroll now. And he is in the process of subjecting the world to his rule by way of judgment. Like what we see around us. Some of the horrible things we see. um, Manifestations, displays of judgment on the earth. At the same time, salvation is being worked through the nations. In real time here, right now. In other words, he holds and he is bringing this story to a conclusion here and now. And and it makes sense with what we know about the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, very important and and popular um, 
text that we use for evangelism. But before we ever get to evangelism or making disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been, past tense, it's already happened, because he's worthy by nature of his death and his life, his resurrection, has been given to me. I have it already. I don't have to approach the throne to get it. It's already been conferred upon me. The Apostle Paul writes, uh, Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 22, that God has put all things, put past tense, under his feet. It's already been subjected to the rule of Christ. Past tense. We're not waiting for this to happen in the future sometime. It's, it's already happened. Authority has already been conferred. The, 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 the symbolic scroll has already been placed into the hand of the Lamb. The book of Hebrews spells it out this way. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his, that is Christ's control. He's already in control of everything. There's nothing outside of his control. Nothing outside of his sovereign rule. But at present, he goes on to say, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, he's in the process right here, right now, of subjecting the world to his rule by way of judgment or salvation. And that is already a present reality. We're not hoping that at some point he takes a scroll, which is you know, that detailed, exhaustive plan of God to bring the world to its climactic close. It's already happening. I believe that lines up with the whole of the New Testament, that interpretation. And that should mean something to us. Because it certainly did, by the way, that was the prevailing view or interpretation of the church throughout history. Um, that this was something that has already happened and is taking place, and that Christ himself is, is rules um, as the representative of the Father. But th- that, you know what that means? That, that means that for, for the people in the first three centuries of the church that were getting butchered, this realization that, that like the Lamb already holds authority, nothing happens to us apart from his permission. And when the dark parts of the book happen, and it's given to the beast to wage war against the saints, it happens by permission, by someone who is higher than a president, someone who is higher than an antichrist. And that Christ himself is involved in our world, giving it over to judgment. Read the book and you realize he gives people over to what they worship. He gives people over to the Antichrist that they worship, their rulers that they they believe will deliver them. Uh, They worship demons, so he gives them over to the demons. They want to be independent of God, and so God withdraws his grace from the planet, and the planet starts to come apart. You want a world without me? Here's what a world without me looks like, and everything implodes. The Lamb is doing that. At the same time, he's bringing people to life. He's, he's, he's bringing hearts to life, awakened to the reality that there is a God who loves us, a God who has already conquered at the cross, and a God who's going to conquer again at the resurrection. That's, that's the wonderful news. No one can take that away from the, from the, 
from the redeemed, from the followers of the Lamb. They, can, they, they will suffer. Some will die. All of us die at some point. But the end of the story for us is the joy of resurrection and the joy of the presence of Christ. No one can take that from us. You see, this, this, is, the, this is the worldview of the, of the Bible and of Christianity. Christ already rules. The Lamb already rules. And he is full in power. And he is full in wisdom. He is the, the perfect man. And yet the loving sacrificial man. Who's worthy of our adoration and our trust. A chapter like this would have been to guys like Polycarp. And, and a lot of the martyrs of the first three centuries would have been, yes. I know who's in charge. And it's not Nero. It's not Claudius. It's not Decius. It's the Lamb who stands over it all, and I trust him. And that, that, that is the same truth that upholds and should uphold God's people right here and right now. Are we living in uncertain times? Absolutely. We always have been in one sense. We've just seen the whole idea of Christendom fall apart and Christianity being in a controlling position. We're not there anymore. We've been here before. Been here before in communist Russia? Pagan Rome? We don't have to be troubled by it. Engage it, yes. Take responsibility in the midst of it, yes. Follow Christ and do what he's called us to do in the midst of it, yes. But we do so as people who know who's in control. That's why this this kind of truth... uh, it's, it's, it's such an anchor for us. It's, it's, we find our confidence in the fact that Christ rules already, and he's, he's working things out in judgment and redemption. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a truth that, that enables us to give thanks, regardless of what's happening, because we know that he's wise, and he is good, and he is powerful. And as he's doing things, he's doing them perfectly according to the detailed, exhaustive, revelation of God's will in that scroll. And just, I told you, it was detailed, right? That's part of the writing without and within. That means your life is part of that story. Your life is part of the scroll. And so is mine. And that it's not by accident that God has us go through things. But in the midst of going through them and doing our best to respond by grace as Christ would call us to respond, patience and love, peace, self-sacrifice, waiting. Um, That is, he calls us to do those things. We do so knowing that you've got this. You ever have people tell you when you're in the middle of your going through a difficult time, it'll all be okay. (laughs) Ever anybody say that to you? You know, your son is rebelling or you're, you know, someone's dying and someone says, you know, it'll be okay. Whenever somebody says that to me, and I know they mean it well, it feels a little bit hollow. Because it's like, you can't guarantee that everything's going to be okay. A human voice cannot make that kind of guarantee, but there is someone who can. And while the details of our situation may be resolved in a way we don't anticipate, at the end of the day, we can hear Christ say to his followers, it's going to be okay. Because I've got this, and there's nothing outside of my control. 
So I hope this, this, this week, as we, you know, give thanks, I, I hope it's deeper than just, hey, thank you for the new set of tires and for the fact that there's rain, which I'm, we ought to be really thankful for, um, or the turkey didn't get dried out. It's like, that's good too. But if it does get dried out and it stops raining and the drought continues, we still have reason to give thanks because we know who rules over us and he's good. Amen? Lord, we give thanks to you, to your holy name, for your perfect, exhaustive, detailed love. In the name of our great king, our high priest, the lamb who was slain for us. Amen.